Stay hungry, stay foolish. Zest equates to zing, enthusiasm, energy, gusto, eagerness, zeal, and fervor. It also suggests a tang, a sharpness. It's the opposite of bland. Today's book, called Zest, is not just a book on personal development. There are an awful lot of those out there. Zest is a catalyst. It drives you to rethink, rejuvenate, and reinvent. If only there was a way to unearth your passions, recover the zest for life you once had. Maybe there is. Zest is a wake-up call for you to explore the formative moments that define your life. It challenges you to believe that your best days are still ahead, to search your soul, to shake things up and bask in the warmth of glorious individuality. We welcome the author of Zest, How to Squeeze the Max Out of Life, Andy Cope. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, fella. Thank you very much. I'm a big fan, by the way. I've been, since I found out I've been on the podcast, I've been binge listening. So you've had some cracking guests. <laughs> thanks a million, man. And you give us a real wake up call at the start of the book. And I love this because we often take this for granted. We only have 29,000 days on average on the earth, which is only 4,000 weeks. And that puts a hell of a lot of things in perspective. Doesn't it just, mate? Do you know what? I mean, we run sessions around Zest and the art of being brilliant and keynote talks and stuff like that in businesses and in schools. And if I stand in, in, in a primary school and I, I announce to the kids, you've got about 4,000 weeks, there's, there's a huge uh, round of applause and they're cheering and high-fiving each other. It's like the best news in the world. <laughs> but if I announce that exact same statistic to a corporate audience, there's a sort of tumbleweed moment. There's less punching of the air and more of a collective gulp. Is it even true? And some people working out how many they've got left. And I think really we're back to the point about Zest is is a wake-up call, really. I describe it a bit like, I can't remember what it's called. You know when your heart stops and you go to hospital and they put, stand back, clear, clear, and they go, it's like buzzing you back into life, really. A wake-up call, a reminder, in a nice, gentle, and humorous way. And one of the ways you guide us to remind ourselves of who we used to be, you, throughout the book, pose these questions that we ask ourselves. And one of them is, what is true about yourself today that would make your eight-year-old self cry? I think that's a really cool question, but it's essentially, we describe zest. In fact, a lot of the personal development stuff that we write is not personal development, okay? It's, it's what we call personal remembering. Because I think if you get back to when you were eight, you know, when did jumping in puddles become a bad idea in your life? Because I think if we, I think I've spent 12 years, fella, 12 years getting a PhD at Loughborough University, looking at the science of human flourishing. And most of what I found was, Stuff that I already knew when I was eight, but I forgot. <laughs> so all it is, is a gentle reminder. Maybe it's no new stuff in happiness. Maybe well-being is already there. We just need to remember about how to be our best selves. You studied psychology and you noticed that most of the study of psychology is studying sickness. And you wanted to flip that around. Let's share with our audience the idea of the two percenters. Yeah, the two percenters. Okay, I describe it. It's a little bit like... The difference between change and transformation. So just hang in there, right? So imagine if you lived in an egg, then you could be really, really busy in your egg. You could spend your 4,000 weeks in your egg, painting it, decorating it, putting a new kitchen in your egg, and being genuinely really, really busy in your egg. And that's changed. There's a lot of people in their egg. Transformation is about hatching. So it's about kind of hatching into this bright, fantastic world that's out there, this full-color dynamic world that's out there that most people never get to see because they're so busy in their egg. Now, transformation for me can happen on a personal level. 
and it can happen to an entire subject area. So I studied psychology, traditional strands of psychology, back in the day, back in the 80s, and psychology was 100% about ill people. So I spent three years at uni. I've learned about phobias, disorders, anxiety, depression, paranoia, schizophrenia. Every single lecture that I ever attended as a psychology student was named after an illness. And it never crossed my mind at the time, but there wasn't a single lecture on well-being or human flourishing or strengths or passion. It's almost like the positive stuff didn't exist. And then in uh, 2005, I went to Loughborough Uni and I decided to completely flip it on its head. The whole transformation thing, let's break out of the egg. Psychology as a subject needs to think differently. We know nothing about the handful of people in your life that I call the two percenters because you can count them on the fingers of probably two fingers. The people in your life who are genuinely upbeat, full of energy, full of passion and hope and optimism. They've got a smile on their face and a spring in their step. There's psychology for 130 years since psychology was invented as a subject has never, ever taken those people and studied them because they're not ill basically they're not ill so the psychology profession would say why would we study happy people because they're not ill and i decided to flip the coin and say well why aren't they let's study them find out what they're doing that makes them flourish and maybe then we can take on some of the stuff that they're doing so the rest of us don't have to be ill either yeah i love that and you give us lots of wake-up calls at the start of the book and i'd like to share some of these wake-up calls one of them you mentioned it's a young people problem if you call it a problem but that they watch nine hours of screens per day. And that equates to 30 years of an 80-year life. Now, that puts things in perspective because most people I meet will say they don't have time to read or they don't have time to explore a passion, etc. But when you're spending nine hours on screens every day, whether it's YouTube or social media or watching Netflix, binge watching, that's a lot of time. And you give us this wake-up call, which really does bring things to life. Well, mate, everybody's infected with busyness. So B-U-S-Y-N-E-S-S. That's the modern world for you. We're all rushing around, you know, too many things to do, not enough time to do it. And our argument really is, is maybe we're just busy doing the wrong things. You'll know that the mental health stats are going the wrong way, fella. I do work in schools now. So it used to be mental ill health was a, an adult thing. So you'd be diagnosed with depression. And now it's coming down the age groups. If I go to, into a British primary school, there's kids falling over with anxiety and panic attacks at much earlier ages now. And you look at social media you know we're busy doing the wrong things social media we think makes us connected yet the stats for loneliness have gone through the roof you might have a thousand facebook friends but the one real flesh and blood friend you can go and have a beer with and talk about things that's what we need more of so less social media less fake friends and more real friends and another challenge brought to life a little bit more by social media is comparisonitis Parasonitis. I mean, we all, we're all guilty. I'm guilty. I bet you're guilty, mate. You go on Facebook or you go on your social media and you scroll through people's lives. And what you don't really twig is that that's the highlight of their lives. That's the best bits of their lives they're putting online. And you compare their best bits with your mundane life. <laughs> you know, a lady said to me the other day, oh, I did a course. She said, oh, my life is like a roller coaster, she said. And, and, I, and on the way home, I thought about that. I thought, well, I know what she means. She means she has lots of ups and lots of downs and lots of twisty, turny stuff. But I thought, is that actually a correct analogy in the modern world? Because my life isn't like a roller coaster, mate. Mine's a bit like queuing for the roller coaster i spend a lot of time not doing very much or in mundane things it's not all loop in the loop and twisty turning my life does have exciting bits but there's an awful lot of mundane stuff that you have to get through and really what zest is is about trying to find 
different ways of thinking and different ways of behaving and the version of you that deals with the mundane and the exciting bits and, and it's bring, bringing your best self forward really i mean it's quite a simple concept i know loads of other people have written about it as well we call it call it deja moo you know it's the same <laughs> old the same old bull and we and, and, and I, you know i've written lots of books as well i'm guilty of that as well so we wanted to write something that was like i say got a humorous core but it's not for, it's so not funny right because it is about everybody listening to this wakey wakey 4000 weeks we talk about life life being a present don't send it back unwrapped yeah i love that and there's an analogy i loved here that you use in the book around the china tea set so imagine you buy this china tea set from a local charity shop someone's pride and joy hardly used and you pay a tenner for it Oh, mate. Well, can I, I mean, Will, my, my co-author wrote that, but I can bring that very, very close to home with my own grandma, right? So my own grandma, who's no longer with us, um, she had in her kitchen a glass cabinet with her special tea set in it, mate, right? And I think in my life with my grandma, she brought that special china tea set out probably six or seven times. She was waiting for the perfect guest or royalty, or God knows who she was waiting for, mate, six times. And then we kind of inherit it off her as an absolutely pristine. So what we, when that alludes to something we call destination addiction, which means we're kind of waiting for a special occasion to be happy. I'll be happy on Friday. I'll be happy next year. I'll be happy when I get married. I'll be happy when I get divorced. I'll be happy when I retire. And, you know, I want that tea set to be cracked and chipped. I want to use it every single day because we're back to if, well, my thing is life is the ultimate special occasion. Yeah. So stop waiting for something amazing and start to be amazing. Maybe that's the catchphrase you should have used. The one place I see this a lot of is homes. So people's homes, pride and joy for people, which is fine. But when you have children, you got to let them use the bloody house. Like, you know, I let them build <laughs> forts and spaceships out of their couches. And my wife would come in and she what are you doing? And the couches be all over the place. But like, I'm going to go and what? That's what DFS is for. Buy a cheap couch and let the kids wreck it and then get one when they've evolved and they've moved out of the house. Yeah, but mate, when, you're, when your kids are 40 and, and 45, they will look back on their childhood as, with really fond memories. They are the best times, aren't they? They are the best times. The, the time we built a den or the time we went sledging or the time, simple pleasures. Well, young people particularly are associating very, very strongly. They associate happiness with money. Like that is a really, really strong. If I in a secondary school, if I say to 400 teenagers um, who wants to be happy, I'll get a kind of grunt and a half a dozen hands will go up. If I say who wants to be rich, then I'll get 400 hands in the air. Yeah, yeah, I want to be rich. How do I do that? So we are chasing. We're back to the point of chasing the wrong things. And I think when you get a little bit older, when you get old like me in the 50s, then then you look back on your childhood and you look back. You know, if if I asked if if everybody listening to this got a pen and paper and wrote down the top 10 happiest moments of your entire life, then I'm fairly sure that there won't be a single product on there. It will be experiences that you've done with people that you love. Um, probably with no Wi-Fi either. Um, and very, very simple things like building a den out of cushions in your lounge on a rainy day. So let's jump into some of the solutions. And you talk about the cool rules. Cool's with, cool with a K to make it even cooler. Let's share some of those cool rules. <laughs> that was from Cool and the Gang. His name wasn't even cool. I think that's in the book somewhere, yeah. Well... I particularly like the concept of the sausage machine, which we have blatantly stolen off Richard Wilkins. And if I just uh, uh, t tell your listeners very quickly, imagine a sausage machine, right? So you've got a sausage machine in front of you. You've got the ingredients that go in at one end. You turn a wheel and your sausages are going to come out the other end. So, right, Aidan, it's not a trick question, but if you wanted pork sausages, what would you put in your sausage machine? 
pork. Pork, good answer, mate. Good answer. You put piggies in there. If you wanted vegetarian sausages, what would you put in your sausage machine? Bit of tofu. Yeah, yeah, good lad. Yeah, but some <laughs> people sometimes say vegetarians, which is interesting. Um, but if you wanted, if you wanted pork sausages, you wouldn't put vegetables in because that just wouldn't work. Okay. So if you then just take exactly the same concept and apply it to those pesky four thousand weeks that we've been talking about, and you imagine that life is now a sausage machine, your four thousand weeks is there in a big vat in front of you, and once again at the one end we can put the ingredients of life in. Um, we can turn the wheel and life is going to come out. The, day, the day-to-day stuff, every single day, you're going to get another sausage of life. So the simple question is, if you wanted a brilliant life, okay, what were you going to put in? If you want it, or for example, more specifically, if you wanted, for example, to be more confident in your life, what would you need to put in your sausage machine of life? And it would be confidence. If you wanted to be more positive, you would need to put positivity in. And all we're finding really is that far too many people are standing at the wrong end of the sausage machine of life, right? So they're at the at the results end. They're waiting and waiting and waiting for a brilliant day or waiting for life to become amazing. And these two percenters, these very rare people who've got that spring in their step, they're at the ingredients end of life. So they point the finger back at themselves. And, and I guess it's personal responsibility. They ask the question, what am I going to do to guarantee a brilliant result at the other end? And quite frankly, Matt, I used to, I used to share an office, classic example, I used to share an office with a lady called Michelle. Right? And Michelle's a lovely human being. She's a perfectly nice person. But her catchphrase was nightmare. So every, <laughs> I say, hi, 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 Michelle, how was your weekend? Oh, it was a nightmare. I, I, the weather's a nightmare. The phone's ringing. It's a nightmare. And eventually... You know, she's putting nightmare and she's getting nightmare out. And believe it or not, once eventually she uh, she got married. They had a little boy called Joshua, and uh, I went around her house to give her a, a sort of prezi and a little outfit for Josh. And I said, I cannot believe we've worked all, all these years, and now you're a mum. And she looked at little Josh, fast asleep in her arms, and go, Oh no, nightmare. <laughs> and, and so, and I don't know what Josh's first word was, but I could hazard a guess. Now she's not a horrible person; she's a lovely human being. She's just putting the wrong ingredients into life, and life for her was a drudgery. Mondays were bad, Fridays were good. It's all these learned behaviours, and we're trying to unlearn those and reprogram, reprogram in at a, a, a different level. But if you basically, mate, it's your life; it's your ingredients. You can put whatever you want in you can put can't be asked having a nightmare low energy negativity and and that's fine that's your choice but you're gonna not, not get great sausages out the other end or you can flip it and say do you know what let's make 2020s the best decade of my life and for you to do that what ingredients are you going to have to put in and I t- if i was hazard a guess it will be confidence and optimism and passion and purpose and happiness if you stick those in i'm fairly sure that your life will be a whole lot better. Yeah, and one of the ingredients you say to avoid is news. So I fully agree with you with this. So much of the news is negative news and even social media and even, as you, as we talked about earlier, comparisonitis, we're comparing ourselves the whole time and they're the wrong ingredients to be putting in. So put in good information, put in good data so you get good data out. I'm amazed. I mean, I know that you get this, Aidan. I love it that you're kind of indoctrinated into this way of thinking. You probably were from your rugby days, I would imagine. But how many people do you look around and don't? They're just not doing the right things. They're just putting the wrong ingredients in. I mean, the news is one of the things I looked at in my PhD. Is I think something like if you just stop reading the the local newspaper, you'll be seven percent happier straight away. So just actually, less. News. I'm not saying no news. You need to know you know, what's going on in the world vaguely, but sitting in front of the TV news, shouting at the TV, that is not a good ingredient for happiness. It's another example of us doing the wrong things over and over again. And we are 
quite often creating the negativity or magnifying it. I mean, the new, what is the news? The news is hotspots from around the world that have gone dreadfully wrong. That's basically it, piped into your living room 24-7. The news doesn't report on happiness. The news doesn't report on all the traffic jams that aren't there or the trains that run on time, <laughs> does it? <laughs> and actually, one of the things you talked about here is plot twists. So plot twist, twists are coming no matter what. And what we tend to do with a plot twist when it's a negative one, and we talked, you talked earlier on about the roller coaster, is when it's low, we come home and we offload on the people closest to us and we actually create them into a negative mirror. And I loved what you said here. We pebble dash them with emotional diarrhea. <laughs> well, you do think about it. How many people listen to this when you get home and how was your day? Oh, don't talk to me about my day. What a meeting and back to back meetings. It's all been a nightmare. And what you don't realize is, well, actually, has it been an entire nightmare? Or is it just five minutes that's gone wrong that you're that you're moaning about? Most of your day will probably have gone brilliantly well but you're just not sharing that with the people you love if you cut 80 percent of you low-level grumbling then you feel just so much better most of what you moan about is is first world problems and quite frankly nobody's really listening so so the traffic and the weather and the late trains and all that kind of stuff and we and we end up saving that for the people we love and if you just lose stop moaning cut out 80 percent of your low-level grumbling you will feel amazing so somebody had a go at me yes but a problem shared is a problem halved she said and i said well well <laughs> is it have you how have you halved it? you've just doubled it haven't you? If you how is you going into work moaning about not the lack of car parking spaces in the car park how has that halved the problem you've just spread it to about 10 people in the office so actually you will feel a whole lot better if you don't grumble but the people around you will also feel a whole lot better my phd is what we call flourishing so i've not really been looking at happiness per se but i spent 12 years seeking out happy people following them around working out why they're so happy and the two percenters that you've mentioned a couple of times they are flourishing and flourishing very crucially, is when your happiness is bigger than you. There will be that handful of people in your life who, when they're in the room, you feel great as well. And it's this emotional contagion that really, really does it for me. Because essentially, when you're having a fabulous day, that will leak out of you and reach three degrees of people removed from you. Take you as an example, because you've got two kids, yeah? So if you get out of bed in the morning, mate, with a smile on your face, a bit of gratitude, got some music on when the kids come down for breakfast and you're serving the Cheerios with a smile on the face, then that means your kids will be a minimum of 16% happier just because you're in their life, all right? So with very little effort, your happiness is transmitted to your kids. So then your kids walk off to school and they're 16% happier. They might say, hi to the teacher and a big smile to the teacher and be a pleasure to have in class. So your teacher is now happier by a minimum of 10%. Now you've not met your kid's teacher, but she's benefiting from your happiness. But it doesn't end there. Your teacher then has a great day because your lads are in her class and the teacher goes home and she interacts with her own family who are then 6% happier because your lads are in her class. Now you've not met your children's teacher and you've not met the teacher's family but that's your happiness leaking out of you creating a ripple of positivity if you can't be asked to up your game for yourself do it for the people around you yeah absolutely i love that analogy of the mirror because it just mirrors back to you and then as you say in the book creates your reality so your reality becomes that can we just go a bit deep mate can we go a bit deep the problem with me, fella, I'm really enthusiastic. I know some stuff that really works that your listeners will love. And then I know some stuff that's a bit weird. <laughs> not, it's not everybody's cup of tea. But if we give it a go, we are confused, I think, about where our feelings come from. 
and this is really this is really big right so if you're listening to this in the car just turn it up and concentrate right so how it works is we really really think that the external world is making us feel in a certain way so as a brit right it really makes me feel that brexit is upsetting me or it makes me really feel like that when it's drizzling on a monday that's getting me down and and i really really believe that when the news is on i get angry or when somebody cuts up in the traffic that is going to annoy me and it absolutely 100% seems like the external world is creating your feelings but it isn't and let me give you an example an example from zest from the book and it goes back many many years ago now where we went on holiday to uh, north devon and it was one of those rainy weeks in, in a British seaside holiday. So we went to a place called uh, Ilfracombe and my kids were tiny. So Sophie was about six, Ollie will have been about two. And we had to kill off a day while it was raining. So we went around the shops. They got a couple of pounds each, which was a lot of money to them in those days. And they got to choose, um, they could choose whatever they wanted. And Sophie, my daughter, paid two pounds for a tiny little sort of pink cloth rabbity thing i can't remember what it was now but she called it pinky right so it's about six inches tall it's a little cuddly toy full of beans and pinky at age so pinky became sophie's go-to toy so and you've got kids so you understand that pinky went to sleep with soph pinky actually went in her backpack to school um pinky actually went to university with soph later on as well so pinky was a go-to toy and over the years he got a bit grubby and a bit worn but she absolutely loved pinky now if i took pinky and a scalpel and i slit that toy down the middle and opened it up right then i'm telling you right now that pinky contains no love all right in fact pinky contains beads is <laughs> uh, made of a material probably made in a factory in china pinky contains no love so therefore what that means and then it's slightly weird 100 percent of my daughter's love for pinky was coming from within my daughter i mean 100 percent, right now uh, so, so i know it doesn't seem like that and but that, that's the way it is now as adults we just get adult pinkies so we really really feels like that your anger is coming from the person who cut you up in the traffic it genuinely feels like your your new shoes are making you feel happy it absolutely hook line and sinker feels like your bad haircut is is ruining your day when of course what we're really saying is that can't ever be the case. The world is pretty neutral until you apply some thinking to it. So every single feeling that you have ever experienced and will ever experience is generated from inside you. And that inside out thinking is fascinating for me. I'm only on the, the edges of understanding it at the moment. It's, it's, it's not a clever thing. It's an insight. But once you get it, what you realize is a lot of your stress will fall away because you are creating it yourself. It, the world isn't doing anything to you. You are doing it entirely to yourself. One of the cool rules is that bad things happen just not as often as we think. And it made me think about philosopher Alan Watts, British philosopher who I love his work and he used to say that we need rocks in life because think of soil without rocks, it would just collapse, it would sink and rocks give us foundation. So we need the bad to appreciate the good. And it got me thinking about the story you shared in here about asking kids, why are they happy that hasn't happened yet? And if we think about that, celebrating the, the bad things that never happened to us. And I loved the case here <laughs> of the six-year-old and the demonic ventriloquist dummy. Oh, mate, can I just share that with your listeners? I mean, by the way, Alan Watts, wow. If you're reading Alan Watts and you're watching him, everybody, 
uh, if you're of this way of thinking, if you like the pinky story, then Alan Watts will tell that a whole lot better than I do. <laughs> um, but but what we, yeah, in the book, it says, what hasn't happened that you didn't want the ump celebrated? Which is like a bonkers question. What hasn't, you won't understand it for a while. What hasn't happened that you didn't want the ump celebrated? And I ask, once again, a bunch of school kids that. It was in Jersey, actually, um, at the Opera House there, doing the Jersey Book Festival. But 600 kids, what hasn't happened, you didn't want the ump celebrated. So the hand went up from a little lad probably about six years old so the microphone went over to him I said, what hasn't happened that you didn't want the amp celebrated he put his hand up deadpan he said i haven't been murdered in cold blood by a ventriloquist dummy wearing a clown costume <laughs> so, so of course i'm like that is the most amazing answer ever i said did you want to be murdered of course i didn't he said especially not by a ventriloquist dummy because i find them particularly scary but he said what i've learned today andy is that i'm going to celebrate that every single day so i'm imagining this little lad coming down for breakfast every day with a smile on his face announcing to his mum, you know woohoo i'm still alive i've not been taken out in the night by a demonic dummy and then and, and similar vein a little girl over the other side of the auditorium puts her hand up microphone makes its way to uh what hasn't happened you didn't want you haven't celebrated she said i i went to the toilet this morning and there wasn't a crocodile in it and it, it's, it's a, a genius of kids mate because i did you i said did you want there to be a crocodile of course i didn't she said it would have been my bottom but what i'm going to do every time i flush is celebrate no crocodiles now i know that that's weird and kids do it better than adults actually they're more creative but really what we're saying is your brain is organized in the exact opposite way your brain is programmed as a problem spotting machine that's why one bad driver ruins your entire commute. One angry customer ruins your entire day. But there's a lot of stuff, bad stuff that's not happening. And it's hard for your brain to celebrate some bad, some stuff that hasn't happened. But by retraining your thinking, you can become one of these two percenters. In fact, that's a really interesting point about being one of these really upbeat, happy, positive people is that it's pretty much a learned behavior. They're not there by accident. And after 12 years of interviewing happy people, is they've got strategies, mate. I mean, some of which we're, we're kind of covering now. They, they do things differently in their head. They live in exactly the same world there. That's another point, isn't it? That they get cut up in the traffic, that Brexit's happening to them. It rains on happy people as well. But they have this fantastic ability to think differently about those situations. Let's get into the bit of the sciencey bit, as you call it. And this is your expertise in the book. And my favorite part, by the way, and one of the rules you share here is the 50-40-10 rule. 50-40-10 basically means that your happiness is is like a pie. Describe it like a pie. 50, so 50% 50 of um, whether you're likely to be happy and positive is, is genetics. So you look at your mum and dad. If they're smilers, you've got a good starting point. Right. 10% is about the external, ex external circumstances around you. So whether you're married, what kind of job you've got, the kind of weather, the things that are happening outside of you will also determine the kind of um, – happiness you're feeling but 40 percent of your happiness of that happiness pie is down to the intentional strategies that you've got in your head now actually in my phd i do put the boot into that whole thing and suggest because that's what other academics are arguing and i would argue that actually that 40 percent is very very underestimated i i know from experience that you can definitely learn to retrain your thinking to give yourself a whole more positive outlook but without being overly happy clappy we're trying to avoid you know you, you coming into work all jams houses on a monday going woohoo don't those weekends drag somebody's gonna you know you're gonna get bullied for that so we don't <laughs> want to overly happy so it's something i looked at in my research was you can be too happy and if you're annoying people i call them grinagog grinagog is somebody who's inanely overly cheery you just want to punch them so i think if, if you got to that level you're overdoing it 
So it's just getting the getting your positivity to the right level so that you raise the emotional tone of the people around you. That's flourishing when it leaks out of you, not just for the benefit of you, but for those closest to you as well. Great. And a term that you coined is metanoia. And I loved your example of the Swedish speed lottery. Metanoia is like flipping your thinking and rethinking how you think, essentially. And in Sweden, they they did this experiment where the normal speed camera, um, everybody who was under the limit got put into a lottery. And everybody who was over the limit got a fine as normal, but the fines went into the pot. So if you were driving carefully under the limit, then you got a chance of winning a prize. And guess what? It worked. People deliberately slowed down with those speed cameras because they wanted to be in the lottery. Later on, you talk about some of the habits of the two percenters. Let's get into that, actually. And, and this one teases up nicely for habit number seven, which is commitment. And this is where so many fall down. And personally, I have a mantra, which probably comes from sport, which is your why must be bigger than your try or your excuses will be. And I often thought about it in sport is that you can play through injuries like you might tore in your calf. Sometimes it was breaks, broke my arm once and you play on. And because your mission is so critical that you don't even feel the pain. It's a great example, isn't it? In, in rugby is full of those examples. But I think in everyday life, so a teacher, it's that last lesson on a Friday afternoon because you've got to be as good on a Friday afternoon as you're on a Monday morning. It takes me somewhere actually, mate. it takes me to sleep. That's another thing. I, I, I'm kind of, I know there's a lot of research out there now on sleep, but if there was a magic tablet, if there's a magic pill that you could take that would alleviate 80% of mental ill health and sleep was in a tablet form, then it would, it would cure just about everything. There was a, there's a, if you get your eight hours, right, you are so much more useful to the modern world, right? Because you do need sleep. But sleeping is cheating. We're, we're brought up, oh, sleep, I'll sleep when I'm dead. And actually, if you don't sleep, you'll be dead a whole lot quicker. That's what the research is, show, is saying. There was, a, I think it was a University of Warwick study. They equated, if you can get your eight hours of sleep regularly, then that's worth £200,000 of happiness to you every year. So it's like, if they can't, I mean, it's a really difficult thing to quantify, but that's pretty much what it's worth. It's like winning a lottery, mate. So if everybody listening to this, just treat yourself to an extra hour's sleep tonight, treat your body to that and your brain to that. It'll thank you for it. And it's one of these seven keystone habits. And one of the great keystone habits you talk about is the daily, daily. I absolutely love this one. For the listeners uh, who don't know a guy, a guy called Daley Thompson, in the 1980s, he was the British decathlete. He was world champion, Olympic champion twice, I think. And legend has it, that, and he was really, really good at nine of the events. And he was really, really bad at the 1500 meters, which was the last event. And legend has it that he never, ever practiced the 1500 meters. He just completely ignored it. His only aim was to get round without falling over. And he's a double Olympic champion, but he focused his effort and his time on the nine things he was already good at. So it brings us round to, to strengths, really. And, but if he was in the corporate world, mate, in the corporate world, and he went in for his appraisal, and they'd look at all his nine good things, and yeah, really good at those, but daily you've got to work on your 1500. They would put him on a course to improve his 1500, and he probably would have never won a gold medal uh, or, or ever at all because he would be totally focused on, make, on, on, on pulling these socks up on what he's rubbish at. And there are some things, I think I, I've certainly got things in my life that I'm absolutely hopeless at. And I need to make sure that I am competent at them, but I'm never going to excel at them. So what I'm better off doing and what your listeners are better off doing is investing some time and effort and money in areas where there's already a natural strength. Once again, sounds obvious, but corporately, most organizations are still 
sending people on courses to eliminate their weaknesses. It's stuff like, for example, you have a creative person and they're forced to work in Excel or they're forced to come up with financial projections, stuff that they absolutely hate and they'll drag for a long time and it just drains the rest of their world away. That's the whole idea of an organization. You shore up the weaknesses with diversity, diversity of skill sets, diversity of thinking, etc. But I wanted to get back to one thing, which is compassion fatigue. And there's a saying I love, and it's attributed to Benjamin Franklin. You probably heard this. The taste of the roast is determined by the handshake of the host. And I always take that to mean that it's not just what you do, it's how you do things that absolutely makes a huge impact. We call it to-do list and to-be list. So everybody generally is preoccupied with busyness. So we're rushing through life, trying to tick things off our to-do list. And in the modern world, you've got too many things. Your to-do list runs to two pages of stuff and you're never going to tick all those off. I get that. I understand that. That causes people a lot of stress, leaving things unticked on their to-do list. But really where Zest is coming from is is a thousand times bigger. It's what we call your to-be list. Because your to-be list is what you just said there. Your to-be list is quite brave. It requires a degree of um, courage and honesty to point the finger back at yourself and say, okay, honestly, and I mean honestly, who am I being while I'm doing those things on my list? And that's a big question, right? Am I being world-class? Am I being full of uh, positivity and optimism? Or am I being a bit ground down by a drizzly day? Because if you can get your to-be list right, so if you can step into being your best self on a more consistent basis, um, sometimes against the odds, but if you can do that, then a lot more things will get ticked on your to-do list because you're just damn sight more productive. And ultimately, if we, got, we started with those 4,000 weeks, let's nip back there. At the end of your 4,000 weeks, Aiden, so when you've used all yours up, um, I'll tell you what's going to happen. There's going to be a bit of a do with some sandwiches and some cups of tea, probably probably some Guinness in your case, yeah? Now, you're not going to be there to listen to the conversations, but the conversations are 100% about you on that day. And I know you've done some stuff, but those conversations on that day won't be about that. It'll be about who you've been while you've been doing that stuff. So this is not trivial stuff. This is massive. It's stepping into being the best version of you. You've studied this happiness, but also longevity. And it'd be great to share some of the reasons some people live much happier lives, much longer lives, etc. Yeah, there's two places in particular, uh, Okinawa, which is a Japanese island, and I think Sardinia in Italy. They, if you look at uh, longevity, they have so many more centurions, so many more people living to over 100. And off the top of my head, I, I can't remember them all, but what the ones I like are uh, Harahachibu, right? So that's a Japanese... Um, saying it's a mantra that they say in Okinawa before they start eating. And harahachibu basically means I'm going to stop eating just before I'm full. So they actually, before they pick up their chopsticks, they say, harahachibu, I'm going to stop eating just before I'm full. And now I don't know about your house, mate, but in our house, we don't stop eating till, we, till it hurts. And we, know, and, we do, and we know that's wrong, and we're trying to get harahachibu. The other thing they do is that they um, belong to an extended family quite often, so they don't put grand on granddad in a home. They, they accommodate them in an extended family. And the other one that I really like is that they stay active. So in Sardinia and in Okinawa, you're much more likely to see the old deer, you know, cycling to the shops at age 89, <laughs> 90. Yeah, and, and I just think that staying active, it keeps your brain healthy. Um, and, and stop eating just before you're full. So don't pig out, essentially eating sensibly. You talked about who do you want to be? But you gave a very simple exercise of three breaths that you take at any period throughout the day as a way of resetting and reminding yourself of the important things. I've just come back from three months in India, by the way. 
um, when I went up into the Himalayas and lived in a monastery. Maybe that's another another podcast for another day to learn about mindfulness and meditation. And I hated it. Actually, I hated it because you don't need. To, I don't need to sit for six weeks with my legs crossed chanting mantras to be happy. But what I did learn was uh, about breathing better. And um, so there's all sorts of different type, types of breathing. But I think meditative breathing, it's, it's if you just did it three times a day, all it is is you stop wherever you are, just stop, focus on the moment. And it's a big breath in as far as you can. And then you hold it just for a second. And then on the out breath, you think maybe about how you feel right now. And then it's the second massive intake of breath, oxygenating your whole body. And you think about what kind of attitude or state do you want? Do you want would would serve you well? Um, and then on the third big breath, where your oxygen will be really pumping around your body, you should feel a little lightheaded. On the out breath of the third one is gratitude. What have you got to be grateful for in your life right now? And if everybody just stopped and did those three big breaths three times a day, then it just stops you rushing around and puts you in the moment. All you've got is the present moment. Your entire life, and everybody's entire life who's listening to this podcast, your entire life is lived in the present moment. So you've only got now. So all your history, all the past that you've got, all those memories can only be accessed from this present moment. And all the future, the dreams, the holiday in the future, the plans you might have, the future doesn't exist in mindfulness because when you get to the future, that will also be your present moment. Now, of course, what the modern world is very good at is it is making you impatient with the present moment or upset or anxious with this present moment because there might be a better moment coming soon and what mindfulness does is make you realize actually you've never ever ever got anything other than the present moment so by taking those breaths it puts you more in the now and i tell you i promise you mate and i think you understand this anyway but for all the other listeners is that if now is all you've got then falling in love with the present moment is actually falling in love with life itself I thought a lovely way to finish was a beautiful Latin expression that you share right at the end of the book, which is materium superabat opus, which means the workmanship is better than the material. I absolutely love this as a mantra for life. Well, I think we're dealt a certain set of cards in our life, aren't we? And how you play those cards is up to you, really. And I think that what I've learned over the last 15, nearly 20 years now of studying positive psychology is that by putting a little bit of effort into me and my attitude particularly, then what I do is that over time, and, and all these things we've spoken about, what hasn't happened, you didn't want, you haven't celebrated, all that kind of slightly weird stuff, is over time it rewires your thinking and it rewires your habits. And ultimately what Zest is about is, is getting you into those really, really good habits, whether it's sleeping well, eating well, doesn't really matter, it's all the same thing. It's about being the better version of you. And Andy, where can people find out more about your work, The Art of Brilliance, etc.? Yeah, well, our website is artofbrilliance.co.uk. We also do brilliant.schools. So we are now trying to put well-being on the syllabus and we've, we're about to launch a schools package where they can, schools can access really high-quality well-being resources so children and the teachers and, the, in fact, the parents can learn this stuff as well. Author of Zest, How to Squeeze the Max Out of Life, Andy Cope, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure, Aidan. Thanks for having me.